Larry Bird's not walking through that door. We're talking about practice. Not a game, not a game, not a game. We're talking about practice. It's my team. It's my quarterback. A kick. It is. Good. 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 To be the man, you gotta beat the man. The 2 1. Swung line drive left field. One run is in. This is the Powers on Sports Podcast. Thanks for tuning into the Powers on Sports Podcast. We really appreciate it. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review. Before we get back to the episode, want to mention Titan Home Lending. If you have any home financing needs in the state of Florida, reach out to me, Jason Powers, Titan Home Lending, 205-790-1404. I can help you with a home purchase, with a refinance, with a cash-out refinance, with a renovation loan, a VA loan, FHA loan, conventional loan, and virtually anything in between relative to home financing. So reach out to me at Titan Home Lending, 205-790-1404. Or you can reach me on email at jpowers at titanhl.com. Enjoy the rest of the podcast. From 68 to 16... We are down to nut-crunching time in the NCAA basketball tournament. What a couple of days we had, starting off with the first four, Michigan State-Syracuse. We had overtime games. We had one-point games in the uh, first four. The The Friday of the opening day of the tournament, we were down to 64. We had a first game of the tournament, Florida and Virginia Tech went to overtime. We had three overtime games in day one. A tremendous day of action. Day two was a little more dull, a little more, uh, not as many buzzer beaters and wild finishes. And then we had Monday, I'm sorry, Sunday and Monday were the second round games, the round of 32s, where we saw Oral Roberts make some more history along with Florida Gulf Coast as a two-seed to get to the Sweet 16. We saw teams like Loyola knock off Illinois, Oregon State knock off Tennessee, and then knock off Oklahoma State and Cade Cunningham. An under an underrated Villanova team gets to the Sweet 16. We saw Syracuse in that 2-3 zone light it up in a great game against West Virginia to cement their spot in the Sweet 16. Rutgers with a complete meltdown in the last four minutes versus allowing Houston to steal that game at the gun. The Cougs and Kelvin Sampson make the Sweet 16. Florida State with a nice statement win against the Pac-12 in Colorado. Michigan fighting off a tough LSU 8 seed to get to the Sweet 16 still without Isaiah Livers. Creighton. Not many people thought Creighton, with all the turmoil with uh, Greg McDermott, they had a tough draw. They escaped round one versus UC Santa Barbara on a missed layup basically at the buzzer by Santa Barbara. They get to the Sweet 16. Gonzaga rolling. Oregon doesn't even have to play a first-round game versus VCU due to COVID in the VCU program. 
and then they run Iowa out of the gym. What a performance by Altman and the Ducks in round two over Luca Garza and 36 points to end his college career. USC, Andy Enfield earning the respect with the Mobley Twins, getting it done, destroying Kansas in round two. UCLA having to start in the first four, upsetting Michigan State. Then they get a decent draw and have to play BYU. And then they get even a better draw when they have to play Texas, I'm sorry, Abilene Christian, who knocked off Texas in round one. So the Bruins and Mick Cronin with Zhu Zhang and Jaime Jaquez getting it done into the Sweet 16. And the Alabama Crimson Tide take care of business and manhandle Maryland in round two to get to the Sweet 16. So we have a great Sweet 16. Remember, games are Saturday, Sunday. And then the regional finals are Monday, Tuesday. So you'll get a full weekend of action with the regional finals on Monday night and Tuesday night in primetime. And then we'll have the final four the following Saturday and then Monday for the championship game. So great uh, action so far in the tournament. Hope you've enjoyed it. Obviously, with, with the no crowd, it's, it's been a little different, but I think the games have been excellent. The, the play has been very good. The shooting has been good. Defensively, teams are locking down. So I think we're going to have a great Sweet 16. We got we still have some David and Goliaths, which make it good. We still have some rooting teams of the Loyolas and the Oral Roberts of the world that we can root them in. And we also have some heavyweights. Um, obviously, the Big Ten took a bad, bad beating this last weekend with only Michigan advancing to the Sweet 16. And the Pac-12 was kind of the conference of like bill walton says the conference of champions it's a game of decisions for peyton manning we are up in boise idaho with sean mcdonough back in 1992 when i used to work for cbs but the conference of champions has four teams in the sweet 16 so congrats to the pac-12 we are going to get plenty of pac-12 breakdown with our guest coming up matt zemek the editor of Trojan Wire for USA Today. He's going to talk all things USC, Pac-12, and tournament. You're going to enjoy our chat with Matt. He's a very uh, very good knowledge base for, the, for college basketball, March Madness. We're going to talk coaching hires and all things in between relative to, to, the, to the basketball world. So in for my gamblers out there, I'm going to give you some picks for the Sweet 16. Here we go. Some games that I like. I didn't do so well on Thursday, but I had a nice comeback on, I'm sorry, didn't do so well on Friday, day one, but I had a nice bounce back on Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. Capped off by USC and Florida State Monday night, getting busy covering the number and doing their thing on Monday night. Sweet 16 action. I like Oral Roberts to keep it close against Arkansas. I think Arkansas probably wins, maybe wins the game close. But I think this is a good game. Remember, they if you didn't know, they played earlier in the year. Arkansas won by 11 in Fayetteville. But again, neutral court, plenty of time to rest. I think Arkansas wins the game, but I'm going to take Oral Roberts and the 11. That's too many points in my opinion. You got Loyola, Chicago, Oregon State. Loyola, six and a half point favorites. Again, gun to my head, I would probably take Oregon State here in the points. I think Wayne Tinkle has a has, has put a magical run together, but Porter Moser and Loyola are just 
unbelievable defensively, but I would take probably Oregon State here in the points. A game I really like, Syracuse plus six against Houston. I just think that's too many points to be given this Syracuse team with that 2-3 zone. Buddy Beheim, they got Gerard, they got some, some timely shooting. I like what I'm seeing out of Syracuse. Give me the Qs plus the six against Houston. I could see the Qs winning that game outright, by the way. On to Sunday. Florida State will beat Michigan. I like Florida State plus the two and a half. I think they win the game outright. I think the size, the depth, and the experience of Florida State will be a little too much for Michigan. Quality run here by Jawan Howard and company. But give me the Seminoles to get to the regional final. They will match up against either UCLA or Alabama. I don't have a, a gambling opinion of the game. I think Alabama's going to win the game. The spread's about six, six and a half. You know, if I gun to my head, I would take the tie, but I don't have a gambling uh, prediction on this game. Oregon USC in the West region. Again, all Pac 12 matchup. I like USC minus the two and a half, the Mobley Twins. They're getting some good guard play out of Edie and Anderson. I like the chip on their shoulder that Enfield and company have. So give me USC minus the two and a half against Oregon. And Creighton Gonzaga don't have a gambling opinion. It's a big number, minus 13 or 14. I think Gonzaga wins the game. Don't really have a gambling opinion. So um, there you have some sweet 16 picks for you. Go cash your tickets, make your plays, and we will see you in the final four. So enjoy Matt Zemek. He'll do a He's going to do a great job breaking it down for you. And we had a great chat, so here you go. Enjoy Matt Zemick. You're listening to the Powers on Sports podcast. Remember, check us out on Twitter at Sports. Love to hear from you. And remember, subscribe, rate, and review when you're done listening to the podcast. Apple, Google, Stitcher, Pandora, Spotify, all your major podcast platforms, we should be on there. So enjoy the podcast. Enjoy Matt Zemick. And here you go. All right. Welcome back to the podcast. Appreciate you joining us. We are going to talk all things NCAA tournament, March Madness, all the things that are going on the first two rounds. We're going to preview the Sweet 16. We'll even give you some final four picks. We want to welcome back. To the podcast, Matt Zemek, the editor at Trojan Wire for USA Today, he covers all things USC, and obviously they're right in the the mix of all the all the doings here in the last uh, few days here at the tournament. Welcome back, Matt. Thanks for having me back. Always a pleasure to talk March Madness. This has been an amazing tournament. All right, so tell me what you, what 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 was your schedule for the last for the first four days of the tournament? You just sitting at the house watching all the TVs. How did you handle the first two rounds? Yeah, you're just wearing out the remote control, you know, and and I'm I, you know, this is something that a lot of people have said, Jason, and I agree. Having the tournament in one area yep. and having the, the set locations in this arrangement, you get a reliable tip time. You know, you get a reliable start. You know, it's three hours between games, because they do the in-between cleaning for COVID. Yep. So you don't have four games in one site in one day. You have three. And that is creating reliable tip time. So you're not in limbo. You know, is this game going to start 
Yeah. Uh, you know, at 245, is it going to start at 230? No, you know that it's going to start at the specific time. I mean, the only thing that would upend the schedule would be like a triple overtime game. Right. Uh, but we haven't had that, uh, you know, so having the reliable tip times, that's been really good for, for television viewers. I agree. I agree. No doubt about it. You're right. Cause in previous years, you get stuck behind at a venue and you get an overtime game and that screws up CBS because they want games that they, they stagger the games a little bit. And if you got something where you got an overtime or an injury or something, then CBS has got to fill 15 or 20 minutes that they're not ready to fill in theory. But those guys are good on TV, obviously, to do all that. But you're right. CBS and TNT, they don't want a lot of dead time between tip offs. Absolutely. I mean, like, you know, I now. I personally still like the Thursday through Sunday, yep. you know, having second round games on a Monday when people are at work that, you know, I, I, I think that's a little bit too much to ask. I, I like the fact that you have games on a Thursday and Friday toward the end of the week. Like people can take the day off on Friday, roll right into an extended weekend, kind of make that a holiday. So I really do hope that we go back to Thursday through um, Sunday Yep. But, you know, if they can find a way to get these more reliable tip times, I think that's a that's an innovation that can stick. That, um, so it's, it's going to be interesting what they do next year in 2022. I'd be pretty confident that they're going to go Thursday to Sunday once fans are back in the arena because of travel plans. People can get out of a city on a Sunday and get back home, whereas you don't want – I mean, a lot of people aren't going to stay over on that Monday, miss another day of work. So I think once fans are for sure back in the arenas and you can get a full crowd or a two-thirds full crowd, you'll see the Thursday to Sunday venue back in the mix, I think. I would agree. The other thing, and you know, we, well, we haven't had this yet, but we're going to experience it this coming weekend. Sweet 16 games are going to be unopposed. You know, there isn't going to be the two Sweet 16 games at one time. Right. That's really good. But again, it you know, having your regional finals on both Monday and Tuesday. Yeah, I don't think we're going to see that next year when we get when we get fans back in the equation. I got you. I first, I agree. I agree. All right, just some uh, first observations on the first and second round before we get to all that stuff. Obviously, you had a lot of upsets, a lot of lower. I think I think I saw a stat: more lower seeds have won the first two rounds than since like 1985 or something. And we all thought there would be a lot of parity in the in the seedings. Um, just your general couple thoughts after the first two days. Well, let's just get into the point about, you know, the Pac-12 being underrated. Now, hold on. If you think the Pac-12 was underrated, and I, when I say you, I don't mean you, Jason, but anyone who's listening yep. to your show, if you thought the Pac-12 was underrated, okay, did you think Colorado deserved a number four seed? All right. Did you think that Stanford was a really good team until it cratered at the end of the season? Did you think that, like, Utah – uh, should not have fired Larry Kristowiak like, like that Utah what Utah did was okay perfectly fine this season right. uh, you know did, did you think that Washington was you know just kind of went through a bad time but was uh, kind of underrated uh, you know did you think that Arizona State played to its expectations you, were, was the Pac-12 underrated okay if you were making all those criticisms <laughs> two three weeks ago okay you were right you called it you had your finger on the pulse all along, but I don't recall people saying any of those things. I don't recall people saying Colorado should have been a four seed. I think the only real big 
seeding gripe that a lot of people have was that Oregon should have been a six, maybe a five. That was it. No one was saying USC was underseeded at six. Right. You know, USC, I cover USC. USC's best non-conference win was over BYU, a team that UCLA thrashed. And, and people widely agree that BYU was actually a team that uh, USC didn't, you know, got taken to overtime earlier in the season by Cal Baptist and UC Riverside. No one was saying USC should have been a four. Right. And no one was really outraged that USC wasn't a five. USC is a six. That was pretty much the standard widely agreed upon consensus on Selection Sunday. So, again, where's this notion that the Pac-12 was underrated? Were people beating down the door saying, oh, these Pac-12 teams got some really real disrespect from the committee? I wasn't hearing it. No. And so if you were quiet two or three weeks ago, you shouldn't be crowing now. You can't after the fact these things. That's the whole point of March. You know, we, we go through the regular season and then March results are surprising. And we know these results are surprising every year. That's the whole point. It's a small sample size. The best teams often don't win. Right. You know, number one seeds get knocked off. Number two seeds get knocked off. So we're going to say the Pac-12 is underrated? That doesn't flow with anything from the regular season that we saw. You know, there. Th this is a conference where there are only going to be four at-large teams. Now, Oregon State got the automatic bid, but there are only going to be four uh, at-large teams. And UCLA, though definitely deserving to be in, I don't think there was ever a question UCLA was going to be in. There was a question about whether UCLA would slip to the first four. Right. And it lost to Oregon State. And at the time, you know, remember this, UCLA blew a 16-point lead to Oregon State in that Pac-12 quarterfinal. When that happened, people were saying, Oh, that's a bad loss for UCLA. Yep. People were not saying, Jason, oh, look at Oregon State. This is an NCAA tournament team coming on strong. Right. No one was saying that this was like the rise of mighty Oregon State. No one was saying that. So unless, you know, you were an oracle saying, oh, this Oregon State team is really cresting. It's going to catch fire. It's going to give Tennessee and Oklahoma State a tough time. If you were saying that, hey, you're right, I bow to you. But show me anyone who was saying that. This league was not underrated. The teams were seated appropriately. The regular season was simply not that impressive. And, you know, there were COVID-19 pauses. So that certainly could have interrupted the flow of these teams. And then they get to Indiana. They get a full week together to do team bonding, maybe tighten up their practice schedules, figure out some solutions, and they play better, you know, we could go with that. That's a good explanation right. for why the Pac-12 has been better. Teams didn't really find their groove. They had a chip on their shoulder, had something to prove. They all bonded together in this, uh, you know, closely contained Indiana logistical situation, and they elevated their game. That is the explanation. But the idea that, you know, what they were doing december through february was underrated spare me please <laughs> and i say this as someone who's lived in the west his whole life and if the pac-12 is great i will be the first to say so like in 2017 oregon made the final four arizona was a number two seed had a really strong team under sean miller ucla had the lonzo ball team which was seeded number three gave kentucky a run in the sweet 16 now that was a damn good pac-12 
And it was obvious, and, and it was worth shouting from the rooftops. This Pac-12 was not that Pac-12, not even in the same league. Yep. Let's dispense with the idea that this was an underrated league. It did not have a good regular season. Colorado was the highest-seeded team in the Pac-12. Now, forget about the fact that Colorado didn't make the Sweet 16, but Colorado lost to Cal and Washington in the regular season. Colorado lost to Utah at home after leading by 19 points. That was the highest seeded team in the conference. Right. Absolutely. I mean, no, we're, and we're going to get to U.S. Actual was underrated. You can't. Yep. And, and what people don't realize, any year, any conference, typically the teams that advance are because of good matchups. You know, you say what you want about UCLA and Michigan State. Michigan State is a down team this year. You give UCLA full credit, they're down. Second game, UCLA gets – who do they get in the second round? They get a very beatable team in the second round, BYU, who many thought was the most overseeded team in the tournament. The next round, they get a Abilene Christian. Great story, but if they play 100 times, UCLA is going to win 99 of them. So part of its matchups, again, USC got a great matchup with Kansas, and a, a, down, a Kansas team that's not, as, not very good, very average this year. So – Give full credit to those teams, but like lots of people say, matchups matter in March, especially. Back to the back to BYU. People think, why did Illinois lose? Illinois might have had the worst scheduling matchup in the country in that tournament, having to play a Loyola in the second round. If anybody thinks Loyola is the 29th best team in the country based on their eight seed, they're crazy relative to, relative to BYU, especially. That Loyola team should have been a five or a six seed at worst. And for Illinois to have to play that team, that's a disservice to Illinois, not as much to Loyola. And so matchups matter. Completely agree. BYU and Loyola's seeds should have been flipped. You know, BYU got a six. It seems to me, at least just from my vantage point, BYU got a six because it played and lost to Gonzaga three times. Yep. You know, just boosted its profile, even though it didn't beat Gonzaga. Just playing Gonzaga boosted its overall strength of schedule, all that sort of thing. And But Loyola was the team that won a bunch of games, you know, looked very strong. Yeah, those two seeds should have flipped. Now, I will say, Illinois got a nasty, lousy draw, but... Let's let's point this out yep. in terms of the Big Ten. You know, the mat, some of the matchups weren't good. Like Oregon was a terrible matchup for Iowa. Yes. I think we can acknowledge that. Nevertheless, if you're a one seed, if you're a two seed, you're going to have to beat a good team at some point. Yeah. And you have to play like a one or a two seed. For sure. And neither Illinois nor Iowa played like a one or a two seed. Matchups were bad. No one's going to argue that. But – you know, you're going to have to beat somebody good to win this tournament. Oh, yeah. Uh, and uh, they they didn't rise to the challenge. And, and and say what you want about the Illinois-Loyola matchup. If you don't think CBS didn't want Loyola and Illinois playing in the second round, i.e. they could have been a seven seed somewhere, they were obviously going to get put in the same region. You know, that's just a great TV matchup. This is a, the Midwest is going to love that. The the David versus Goliath in the same – within a 50-mile radius of Chicago, that's no doubt about it. That was a predetermined matchup by the selection committee. Absolutely. I mean, we talked – I think we talked about Michigan State and UCLA in the first four. You TV. know, the committee, the committee wants those sexy TV ma- – I mean, hey, 
this is an entertainment event. This yeah. is a TV event. It's made for TV. You, you, the television partners want those sexy games to show in, in that standalone time slot on the weekend with Bill, with Jim Nance and Bill Raftery. Yes, of course this happens. I mean, if, if anyone still doesn't think the committee tries to set up these matchups, I mean, this should have just nailed that in the yep. coffin for good. Same with same with Texas and Abilene Christian. Of all the three fourteen matchups, it just happens to be the two teams from Texas matched up. And I and I don't blame the committee for doing that kind of stuff because again, it gets more viewers to the sets. It gets the the state of Texas involved, the mid you know the Southwest. So I don't have a problem doing that. But sometimes you have to be careful not to do it at, at the expense of a one seed like Illinois, like the loyal Illinois situation. Completely agree. And a one seed is supposed to be a reward that gives you a better draw yep. than your two seeds and three seeds in Illinois. To be fair, while, though it didn't play well, no, you're right. and though Brad Underwood coached horribly yes. against Porter Moser, nevertheless, yes, Illinois was done dirty by that draw. All right, let's kinda talk like about some of the upsets. Kind of like around. Wichita State, like Wichita State, unbeaten Wichita State against Kentucky exactly. in 2014. You know, that was ridiculous, but we know the committee does those kinds of things. Absolutely. Let's get to a couple of the sleeper teams that were in you know, the first two days in the round one. You had Oral Roberts. You had North Texas, you, you know, beating Purdue. You had Oral Roberts beating Ohio State. What do you think is the edifice of some of these upsets? What are, I mean – Look at Oral Roberts, the best scoring duo in the country with uh, Asmus and and O'Banner. They're just a good team. I, mean, I know they, I know they're a 15 seed, but when you have that kind of firepower, you're going to be in a game like that. And it goes comes back to pressure. These two seeds. I know they come from big conferences, but when you're expected to beat that lower seed handily, and you get to the last six seven minutes of a game like that, that's when the the screws get tightened and the pressure mounts. You mentioned it in a bunch of your tweets free throw shooting at the end Oral Roberts, the number one free throw shooting team in the country, you know, against an Ohio state team who, who's not a great free throw shooting team. So, so those little things are what lead to upsets. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, certainly in terms of in Ohio state, Oral Roberts and Purdue, uh, North North Texas. Texas, those two games were lost at the foul line by, by the higher seeds, Ohio state and Purdue left a lot of points at the line in those games. I think the, you know among the higher seeds to lose in the round of 64, Jason, the worst performance by far was Texas. Yes. Be because they did they had their big man inside, Jericho Sims. He got only one field goal attempt in the second half. They just didn't look inside at all where they had the matchup advantages. I mean, look at UCLA. Now UCLA uh, you know, it is playing generally well is kind of in a groove, but whether you're in a groove or not, you know, if you, if you have taller dudes, much taller dudes than the other side, and, you know, it's not rocket science to get the ball to your taller dudes. So like UCLA has Cody Riley, a few other, you know, beefy big guys and was just able to play over the top yep. of Abilene Christian. I mean, the height difference, the size difference was massive and UCLA just, you know, didn't try to reinvent the wheel UCLA got the ball to its taller guys. So how could, why couldn't Texas do that? Now, I mean, I know that Abilene Christian, in terms of its rotations, getting to the right spots, all that sort of thing was outstanding. So yep. not to take anything away from Abilene Christian, but Texas had big dudes. They do. Texas had big guys just as UCLA did and simply 
wouldn't get them the ball, just low basketball IQ. And for Shaka Smart to not at some point realize this, that that was the worst performance and the worst coaching of any team that any of the really high seeds that lost in the record. And and here's the thing that tends to get overlooked. These teams are playing so much more up and down these days. The turnover numbers are way up. Where teams that if you have to play a grinded out half court game, they're not very good at because they're so loosey goosey with the ball. Texas self destructed with turnovers. Most of them were unforced, really. Andrew Jones, Ramey, Coleman just are just dribbling the ball off their feet, falling down, just terrible entry passes, just the fundamental little things of easy turnovers, live ball turnovers are what kill these up and t- up and down teams that like to run and gun. You know the Texases. The Ohio States like to play it pretty fast. These the Florida self-destructed against Oral Roberts late with the turnovers. That's the part of the game that gets lost is the fundamentals when you're playing so much up tempo and shooting threes all the time. No question about it. And you know, one thing to mention here with uh, just on the heels of Texas, you know, it's been fascinating to see how the Big Ten has been absolutely savage. And not that the Big Ten doesn't deserve it. I mean, this was a big-time flop by the Big Ten. They have nine NCAA tournament teams. Only one gets to the Sweet 16 when you have two number one seeds and two number two seeds. I mean, that is a remarkably bad performance, even if we adjust for the pandemic and the different uh, realities. You know, if you have fans, if you had full uh, capacity – arenas you know maybe like purdue doesn't lose because it has a big crowd advantage we can acknowledge that but even even if you adjust for all the variables you know the the big 10 still flopped in a very big way but as much as the criticism as the big 10 deserves why aren't we hearing on a national level about the big 12 and like what texas endured west virginia losing to an 11 seed uh in the second round kansas State losing to Oregon State in a terribly played game. Yep. Um, you know, so it's not like the Big 12 deserves to be crushed. It's just why has there been this disparity between the Big 10 and the Big 12? They should both be heavily criticized or yep. they should both be given a pass. One or the other, why is there a disparity? I mean, that that was really struck me. Like everyone on Twitter is just burying the Big Ten. Okay not necessarily wrong in and of itself, but the people who are burying the Big Ten aren't burying the Big 12. And I guess that comes from the the notion that, you know, Baylor's in really good shape and Baylor's probably going to play Gonzaga for the whole ball of wax, but that's one team. Right. I mean, the the Big 12 was supposed to be heavily represented in the Sweet 16, just as the Big 10 was. And yet you're here. It's totally different in terms of the level of national outcry and upheaval about it. It's been very striking to see that on social media. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and back to the theme of these teams that come from these one bid leagues, the Oral Roberts is the North Texas of the world. The gap between talent between those conferences and the big 10, we all think it's a huge gap, but when you put them on a neutral floor, no crowd, no, inherent advantage of having to travel to go to you instead of having to go play the game in West Lafayette, you're playing in a neutral site or instead of having to go play at in Austin, you're playing on a neutral site for a team like Abilene Christian. When you're, when the, when the elements get neutralized, it's amazing how close the talent is with a lot of these kids, other than height, the skill level is very similar for a lot of these teams. 
And, you know, this brings up an interesting point. Like, we didn't know how this pandemic NCAA tournament would unfold, Jason, but I going in, my, my inclination was that the lack of fans would hurt underdogs. Yeah. Because you don't, you know, when whenever a two seed is or a 15 seed is threatening a two seed, you know, you have the four fan bases in the arena and the three fan bases other than the two seed are all rooting yep. against the two seed. Yep. They're all rooting for the upset. That was my thought process. But after seeing everything play out, it occurs to me that, you know, the, the, the higher seeds, which play close to home on the first weekend, they missed their fan bases being there. So it's interesting how I went in thinking that the lack of fans would hurt underdogs, but now it seems as though it might have hurt the favorites more. Someone pointed out to me on a different podcast I was doing, if Oregon plays Iowa, you know, in a, in a normal NCAA tournament, that's, that game's played in a site near Iowa. You know, it's played in a Midwest yep. site since Iowa's the two seed. And so that might have been a much more difficult game for Oregon. I recall several years ago, I think it was 2014. Yeah, 2014. Oregon was a seven seed, just as it was this year. Oregon was a seven seed in 2014, had to play the Wisconsin Badgers, the Frank Kaminsky, Sam Decker team in Milwaukee. And Oregon played really well, but that Milwaukee crowd yep. helped Wisconsin down the stretch. So one wonders what might have been if we had a full arena in a normal setup, Iowa might have had a much bigger crowd advantage and had been able to get more energy. So again, the, the lack of fans, I thought it would hurt underdogs in the early rounds of this tournament, but it really did hurt the favorites more. All right, let's get to, let's get to round two. Yeah, we, we had the round of 32 games. Obviously, the one team that didn't have to play was Oregon due to the forfeiture by VCU with the COVID issues. I really thought Oregon may be a little rustier coming into that game, having not played, shot on those rims a whole lot. You know, I, and, and I know Iowa plays up and down and all that, and their defense is not very good, but give full credit to Oregon for coming in that game. They played, what, the first game of the day, too, so I know their body clocks are used to playing. They've been in Indianapolis for a week now, so they're probably used to it, but still playing an early game like that, not having played a first-round game, great credit, full credit to Dana Altman and the Ducks. Yeah, I mean, Dana Altman remains the best coach in the Pac-12 by a considerable margin, and we just saw again why that's the case, you know, I worried that the Ducks would have been sluggish because they didn't get to play VCU. They could not have been sharper uh, in, in the first several minutes of the game, and they remained sharp pretty much the whole way. And, and coach, you know, that is down to coaching. Coaches insist on the details. They, they find a way to balance, you know, criticism and, you know, easing off on the reins, and they, they – they find a way to get their players in the right headspace, right foot. And, uh, you know, um, I look at, as another example, Arkansas under Eric Musselman. I mean, that team just doesn't quit. That team fights for every loose ball, every possession. That's coaching. Yep. You know, you, you know, it's, effort doesn't, doesn't just happen. You, you need to be taught how to invest yourself in every play, every sequence, Every situation, coaching really does matter here. And so, I, you know, to be fair to Frank Gaffrey in Iowa, 
uh, it was much less about what Fran failed to do right. than how it was just Dana Allman having these very talented, very skilled players. I mean, or, or you know, we can we can acknowledge Oregon's a lot quicker than Iowa. Yeah. Oregon was a lot more athletic than Iowa, and or it was you know if Oregon made the plays, Iowa was in was in deep trouble. That's what happened. So it was less about Fran failing. It was a lot more about Dana Altman just answering the bell as a lower seed in March. Once again, remember, he's taken a 12-seeded Oregon team to the Sweet 16 multiple times. Did it in 2013. Yep. Lost to Rick in 2016, um, and then you know uh, got Oregon to the Sweet 16 in 2019, and they very nearly took out the eventual national champion, Virginia. So Dana Altman, you know, again, I, I might have said it before, Jason. It's worth saying it again. If he was at, you know, Indiana or, uh, you know, another blue blood program, he would be a complete rock star. But because he's up in the Pacific Northwest, doesn't get nearly the national attention that his achievements deserve. Now, of course, he has some off-court problems, uh, not not uh, a very honorable or ethical coach, but that's, you know, off the court. On the court, he's as good as there is in college basketball. All right, let's, speaking of, of coaches not getting their just due, and maybe until yesterday, let's talk about your neck of the woods, Mr. Enfield. Lots of people remember Andy Enfield from Florida Gulf Coast back seven, eight years ago, Dunk City, all that stuff. And he parlayed that into the USC job. You know, he wins two games in the tournament in, I think it was 2013 for Gulf Coast, gets the USC job. A lot of people think that's a really tough job from a basketball perspective. It's taken him some time. He's had a couple of appearances, but after yesterday, he thumps and gives Kansas their third worst loss in the history of Kansas basketball, annihilates Kansas. Mr. Enfield had some very strong words for some people in the media talking about he can't coach and he just rolls the ball out there, lets them go play. Give What a job by Andy Enfield of the USC Trojan program. It, it really is the greatest win of Andy Enfield's career, um, you know, Oral Roberts, 15 seed in the Sweet 16 this year, but Andy Enfield was the first coach yep. to do that with that Florida Gulf Coast team in 2013. But this win is a bigger one, and it's a bigger one for a number of reasons. It's not just that he's doing it at a Power 5 program, but if you remember, in 2013, when Enfield took the job at USC, UCLA also hired a new coach. That's when Steve Alford replaced yep. Ben Hallen. So you had both teams in the same city, Los Angeles, going through a coaching change. And so it was very easy to put Andy Enfield right up against Steve Alford. They hired at the same time. How were they going to do? How would they match up against each other? And with this Sweet 16, I think it's now con conclusive and definitive that Enfield did a better job at USC than Alford did at UCLA. Now, of course, Alford didn't stay at UCLA as long as Enfield did. I mean, he got fired, but I mean, he made a couple of sweet, he made three sweet 16s. So you could say, well, wait, you made three sweet 16s. That's still, you know, two more sweet 16s than Enfield. But at UCLA, you're not hired to make the sweet 16. Right. You're hired to make the final four. That's how you're judged when you go to UCLA, whereas at USC, if you make the Sweet 16, I mean, you, you've done some really heavy lifting. USC, this is just USC's sixth 
Sweet 16 or better in the whole history of the program. Right. Enfield has four NCAA tournament wins. He is alone, outright, in first place among all USC head coaches ever. So th- getting to this one Sweet 16, it's the first time in 14 years for USC to be in the Sweet 16. That, to me, puts Enfield at USC ahead of anything Steve Alford did at UCLA with the three Sweet 16s. If Alford had gotten to a Final Four, different conversation, but Alford never got past the Sweet 16 at UCLA. I think th- that question, you know, Enfield is Alford at UCLA. It's, it's taken eight years to get a definitive answer, and we finally have it. And Enfield is the guy who won that fight. And, and, and when you look at the whole battle for Los Angeles argument of, of USC versus UCLA, what this does for Enfield is this is going to sh- shrink the recruiting battles because you, it's always been a given. The best player from California or Los Angeles is going to go to UCLA, where now when you have an Evan Mobley who's come to USC and he's proven he can be a good – Enfield's a good recruiter in the transfer portal, can get guys from a transfer perspective. He has shown – he can recruit and it can show that he can do something with the recruits when he gets some recruits. So I think the, 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 the recruiting advantage by UCLA is, is shrinking and give Mick Cronin. He's done a good job at UCLA, but that advantage has really shrunk in the LA Southern California market. It's a, that that is a tremendous point, Jason. It has to be emphasized because of the size of the transfer portal this year, right now, there's never been a better time to market your program in the transfer market yep. specifically, yep. not just to high school recruits, but this is a great time to have a prominent, attractive look uh, to transfers. And, you know, people transfers in the portal, they're going to see, hey, it's not just Evan Mobley, but wow, Andy Enfield got a transfer from Santa Clara, Tajidi. He got a transfer from Rice. Drew Peterson, he got a transfer from Utah Valley. So transfers uh, from higher profile programs, they're going to look at USC demolishing Kansas on CBS in prime time. That, that's going to be a tremendous pull yep. for USC basketball. I mean, there, there's never a bad time to make the Sweet 16, of course, but for USC and Enfield to do it now with yep. that bulging, massive, growing transfer portal it's going to help Enfield to really get a, a much higher quality of recruit on the transfer market and it could be a catalyst for sustained growth at USC absolutely another impressive team we want to talk about is Alabama they struggled a little bit in that first game against a tough matchup in Patino but they played really well yesterday against Maryland Arkansas is another team from the SEC that's right again Eric Musselman kind of reminds me of Enfield a little bit he didn't get a lot of he got some credit at Nevada, but he's gone to Fayetteville, has re-transformed that program quickly, and he's done a great job. And he's another guy that utilizes the transfer portal a good bit. You know, he's got a good big man. Arkansas is a very dangerous team in the, in, in the region as well. But Alabama, Arkansas, very impressive performances heading to the Sweet 16. Your thoughts? Well, and, and you know, the thing about Alabama and Arkansas – they they both got great draws in the Sweet 16. They do. I mean, they, they Alabama gets an 11 seed. Uh, Arkansas UCLA. has a 15 seed. So yep. you know, they're, 
Yeah, they're both looking great to get to the Elite Eight. And of course, in Alabama's case, this would be the program's first ever Final Four. So, you know, Alabama has Texas out of there, not playing Texas in the Sweet 16. Yep. And, uh, you know, Michigan or Florida State would be a tough uh, Elite Eight team, but I would especially since uh, Isaiah Livers, you know, is not playing, uh, not active for Michigan with the injury. I think that that the East region is Alabama's to lose at this point. And then for Arkansas, I mean, you know, Arkansas will, you know, it will get its shot at Baylor. It will be a Southwest Conference final, yes. basically. Uh, and you and you had you had a lot three you had three Southwest Conference teams as contenders in the South region, and Arkansas won kind of the Southwest semifinal, so to speak, over Texas Tech. And then we could have the Southwest final against Baylor. That would bring back some memories from the early 1980s when Arkansas and Houston, yeah, you know, that Southwest Conference clash, Eddie Sutton, Guy Lewis, seems the year in college basketball. So really looking forward to a Baylor-Arkansas Elite Eight game. I don't think anything's going to stand in the way of that. All right, so you're listening to the Powers on Sports podcast. I'm your host, Jason, with Matt Zemick. Matt's out in Phoenix, I believe, correct? Matt's, Matt's out in Phoenix. Cover, he yep. covers USC for – he's the editor for uh, Trojan Wire for USA Today. All right, before we get to the Sweet 16 matchups, I want to talk a couple coaching situations. Indiana, Utah, Marquette. Lots of talk with Indiana that, you know, potentially Dana Altman might be in the mix at Indiana. You know, a guy like Porter Moser at Loyola, Chicago. Your thought, Utah, I know I know uh, Moser's got some Utah connection with Rick Majerus. Where do you think, do you, first of all, do you think a guy like Moser's going to take a job, a big job, or do you think he's content at Loyola? And if not, who do you like in these jobs, some contenders in this jo- these jobs? Well, you know, I think the, the Porter Moser situation is fascinating, Jason, because let's say Loyola gets to the Final Four, right? If that ha- if he if he takes Loyola to, the, to us in a short period of time, then he might just say, "I'm just going to stay here. Like I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be adored here. I'm going to be loved here, and I'm I'll just try and build a Midwestern Gonzaga." Yeah. Now, some people will say the Missouri Valley is tougher than the WCC, which is true. Um, but nevertheless, I mean, a second Final Four that could that could turn Loyola into a giant. You know, top recruits just want to say, "I'm going to be far better by Porter Moser than I ever would by Brad Underwood." Right. Uh, so you know, that could be like the main. Chicagoland program in terms of recruiting. So that'll be very interesting to see. So I don't offer any prediction on where Porter Moser is going to go, what he's going to do, because that's his own decision. But like, if he doesn't, if he doesn't uh, leave uh, and some of these other uh, high profile coaching jobs, I mean, he, he still has one more job in him. He's still in his sixties. I mean, late sixties, but nevertheless, he's still in his sixties. So he has one more college job in him. And, you know, maybe someone would say, well, he's only going to be there five years. Oh, well, in five years, he'll get you to the Elite Eight. And uh, I think Indiana fans would very much like to go back to the Elite Eight. He never got past the Sweet 16. Um, Same for Kelvin Sampson. So uh, Beeline would be worth it for Indiana. You know, maybe maybe you think about a succession plan. Like maybe you consider 
Uh, you know, when you look at Juwan Howard and Phil Martelli as an assistant, maybe you, you would think about Beeline, hiring Beeline and having him uh, hire a specific assistant that's as part of a package deal. Like he'd hire a younger assistant right. who could be groomed to take over. That might be what Indiana has in mind. Um, in terms of the other jobs, uh, you know, you, one would think that Craig Smith of Utah State is going to get a higher job if he wants one. Um, you know, so Utah, if it doesn't get Porter Moser, Craig Smith could be the fallback plan there. All right. And I think an intriguing job is that Marquette job. I think that's kind of a sleeping, I won't say a giant, but a team that can be very, very competitive in the Midwest and the Big East Conference. You know, Wojciechowski was there seven or eight years. It, it, it will be interesting where Marquette goes because Milwaukee, that's a that's a winning city. That's a that's a city they get a lot of support for their college basketball. It'd be interesting to see where Marquette goes to get a coach. I could see. Yeah, and, and the thing, the thing about Mark. Go ahead. The thing, the thing about Marquette is that, you know, I mean, Buzz Williams took that program to a very high yep. level and like Marquette is not, I don't think, I don't view Marquette as small potatoes. I mean, this is, this is a national championship program. There aren't too many of those, you know, Al McGuire won a national title there. So Buzz Williams got a top three seed with Marquette uh, in uh, 2013. Tom so you Green. can win big there. That Tom is Green. Not like a, Tom Green with Dwayne Wade to the final four. I don't regard that as a program that's like, that can be a top tier Big East program. And so, you know, elite coaches should want to coach there. I, I want the one big name I could see taking a big job and potentially maybe the Indiana job. Chris Beard, he's got some connection with Bobby Knight. Bobby Knight's kind of back into the good graces of the Indiana nation. So I could see that being, and he's the kind of guy that I could see jumping jobs from Texas Tech to an elite program like an, a blue bud like Indiana. So if if the Moser doesn't want to do it or whatever, that'd be the first call. I, I didn't realize Porter Moser was that old. So if he, how old is Porter Moser in his 50s? Probably uh, he's about he's about age fifty, give okay. or take a year. I'd be I think it'll be Moser or potentially Chris Beard at Indiana because I don't think they're going to hire a low uh, an assistant. I think they're going to they're going to try to make a big splash with this next hire, and I think one of those two guys would be the perfect fit there. So I, right. I completely agree. All right, let's get to some Sweet Sixteen at real quick. Give me give me a quick thought before we get to the games. What is your opinion on the state of Kansas basketball, North Carolina basketball, and Kentucky? Some blue blood programs. They've all had a little bit of NCAA issue. I know Kentucky really has it, but Carolina, Kansas, the last few years have had some NCAA issues. I just saw today where Walker Kessler, the big seven-footer, and Carolina is going to transfer. You know, who knows what's – Roy Williams has got to be getting towards the end. Bill Self is in all the scandal at, at, in Lawrence with all the Adidas stuff. Calipari, recruiting class has not been good the last couple of years. What are some general thoughts about those three programs moving forward? You know, I've talked, I've talked to various college basketball experts about the fall of the Blue Bloods, and most of the experts I talked to, Jason, they think that the Blue Bloods are going to be back next year. Now, now back. That's kind of a relative term. So not all the way back, but generally back. So like there'll be sweet 16 level programs, maybe not at their very best uh, to the point where they're likely to make the final four, yeah. but they're, they're going to be solid. You know, with North Carolina, for instance, 
uh, Caleb Love, who, by the way, he might soon enter the transfer portal. You know, just kind of a water and oil fit with Roy Williams' offense. But Carolina's guards just didn't make good decisions with the ball, and they didn't have any good pure perimeter shooters. I think it was just if Carolina gets a good perimeter shooter, a knockdown guy for next season, that should be a very good team, even with Walker Kessler leaving, because they have other big bodies they can can throw at opponents. Um, you know, and, and as for Calipari, Calipari, I think, is the most interesting case. You know, Kentucky made the NIT in 2013, so missed the NCAA tournament, and then Calipari made the final four years back to the final four since. So Calipari has gone through a lot of different ups and downs, but when he goes through a down period, he usually rebounds, but he has some work to do on offense. So, you know, Calipari, he's one of the best guys at coaching effort. He's one of the best guys at getting his really hard with great defensive intensity, but he has slipped on offense. I think a lot of people think that Calipari has not made some fundamental structural adjustments on offense in recent years. Kentucky really didn't seem to have a plan on offense this year. Uh, and, and, and Calipari will need to provide a little bit more structure for his teams, but you know, he, he has shown that he can make those adjustments. I mean, he's, so he's in a rut, but I think he'll get out of it. And then, you know, Duke, the, the, the thing about Duke is that is the Mike Krzyzewski's shift to the one and done type recruits away from the three or four year guys. Uh, you know, he has to find a balance there. Right. And, uh, I think he's struggling to get it. But, you know, there was a there was like a Pete Gaudet feel to this Duke season. You know, Mishashevsky was not totally invested in it. Yeah. You know, you, he, we remember the comments from December, you know, that, you know, they shouldn't be doing this. And and so he was not in the best headspace. Forget about his players. Coach K himself uh, didn't seem 100 percent invested. You know, he wanted to just get through it. So I think we'll see Coach K a lot more in vested next season i think the blue bloods are generally going to be better you know bill self it's it's amazing with bill self in kansas he's been there 18 years this was according to a lot of offensive metrics his worst team his if his worst team is a three seed you know that tells you something about the consistency that bill self has created that'll he'll be back and you know baylor's going to lose part of that very seasoned disciplined veteran lineup i think kansas will be back atop the big 12 next season so you know the blue bloods went through a bad two-year cycle they were bad last year and they were even worse this year i think they're they're going to finally uh, begin to climb out of that next season i got you all right let's get to the sweet 16 let's start in the west region obviously i think we both agree gonzaga over creighton i think that's probably a given you know unless something fluky happens in that game i think gonzaga is going to win comfortably the intriguing matchup is out your way. You got USC, Oregon, the Pac-12 matchup. Give us a scouting report. Did they play this year? Did USC play Oregon this year in the regular season? Yeah, they played once. And the interesting part about that game is that Isaiah Mobley, who one could argue has been USC's best player in the NCAA tournament, had 15 against Drake. Uh, hit um, four three-pointers against uh, Kansas. He was great. Uh, He did not play against Oregon. He was injured. Uh, And he has made some comments in the press. I don't know if you've seen. He said, Oregon stole the Pac-12 championship from us. 
So he gave Oregon some blood and board material, and yeah, he didn't play Oregon the first time. So Isaiah Moby is really going to be at the center of this matchup. Uh, USC's length could be a problem for Oregon. It was in the first game. Oregon scored just 58 points against that long USC defense, and Isaiah Mobley was not on the floor. So USC is going to be even longer. Yep. USC is going to have even more tall bodies. But the, but the problem for USC is that Taj Eady hit three three-pointers early in that game. One per half was just unconscious. Eady has not been the same player since. And if USC doesn't have someone to throw – uh, to make three-point baskets on a regular basis. And let's let's be honest, Isaiah Mobley's not going to hit four three-pointers on a regular basis. Also, Isaiah White, he hit three three-pointers and hit three three-pointers in a game only one previous time this season on January 7th at Arizona. So I think USC's in for some significant offensive regression, but USC's defense might be playing its very best at the right time. So I think USC will want to rock fight. USC and Andy Enfield will want to muck it up. Oregon will want to play the game in the 80s. We'll see how it goes. And here's a tip for our gamblers out there. Mr. Enfield is 8-0 now in the tournament all time against the number, both at Florida Gulf Coast and USC. He's never not covered the number as both a favorite and an underdog as the coach, as, a, as an NCAA coach, which is pretty interesting. So Either way, we're probably going to have an all-West Coast-West Regional Final. What a matchup you could have with it if it's Gonzaga and Oregon, you know, with all the upper the, – the Pacific Northwest, the amount of hype and all that up there. Obviously, those guys compete for a lot of the same kids probably. What are your th – I mean, do we think that Gonzaga is going to get through no matter who they play, or do you think either one of those teams, USC or Oregon, can give Gonzaga a run for their money? Well, you know, USC with Evan Mobley has great two-point defense in the paint. That would be the obstacle to Gonzaga. But Gonzaga loves to get out and transition, has really good three-point shooters. So, like, there's a way for Gonzaga to get around Evan Mobley, yep. you know, to, to minimize his effect on the game. But I think Oregon has the better chance. If we're going to compare against Gonzaga, Oregon has Lots of skilled guys, Richardson, Duarte, different players. Oregon can, has five guys who can score, and that that's similar to what Gonzaga brings. So Oregon can attack Gonzaga's defense from a lot of angles, and Oregon can play a game in the 90s and hang with Gonzaga. And if Oregon plays the way on offense it did against Iowa, and I know that Gonzaga has a better defense than Iowa. Everyone has a better defense than Iowa. But if Oregon's – if all of Oregon's players – are hitting threes as it did against Iowa, Oregon can really give Gonzaga a 40-minute game. Not a 35-minute game, 40-minute yep. game. You have Dana Altman pushing the buttons. That That's really, I think, you know, if I'm Gonzaga, I would rather play USC than Oregon. And that's not a discredit to Andy Enfield, yeah. but just Oregon is built to play an up-and-down game with Gonzaga. Oregon can really stay in the fight in a, in a racehorse game. USC can't. And, and it's really hard to slow down Gonzaga for 40 minutes uh, if you're trying to just play your emphasized defense and your length near the rim. Gonzaga has ways to get around that. I'm gonna I'm gonna go USC Oregon in the in the rest West region. I, I like what I see out of USC. I think the mojo with the twins with the with the chip on their shoulder with Enfield. I'm gonna take Gonzaga to beat USC in that in the West regional final. All right, let's go to the East. Michigan, maybe the, maybe the best matchup of the Sweet 16. 
Florida State, Michigan. Obviously, Michigan, no Isaiah Livers. Give Jawan Howard credit. A lot of people thought LSU was going to beat Michigan, and they were kind of an up-and-down game. Full credit to those guys. And you got UCLA, Alabama. I think UCLA is going to try to muck the game up, similar to what uh, what you, uh, Oregon might, or USC wants to do. They can't run with Alabama. I think they need to muck it up. And Mick Cronin's a good – an isolation kind of coach. He's got Zhang playing great. He's got the other kid, Juarez, Juarquez, Jaime, that's playing great. What do you think, Alabama, USC, Michigan, Florida State? Yeah, I really like I really like Alabama over UCLA. You know, you know UCLA. Hey, UCLA made the most of its opportunity, but let's be real. UCLA played a 14 seed. Uh, this is the second time in seven years that UCLA has been an 11 seed, got the three over or the 14 over three, and played a 14 seed to get into the Sweet 16. And UCLA's run ended against Gonzaga against a two seed in 2015. It's going to end against a two seed here. Uh, Alabama's just in a really good place. Nate Oates has that team peaking at the right time. Uh, you know, UCLA uh, did really well, but, you know, we, we know that BYU was overseeded. We've talked about that. So this is a real step up in weight class. And, and, you know, Alabama isn't just a team that can get up and down and shoot threes. Herb Jones is an excellent interior defender. Yep. So he will be able to handle Cody Riley and UCLA's beefy bodies inside that should not be too much of a problem for Alabama I mean Alabama is going to have to go really cold from three yeah for UCLA to have a, a really good chance in this game and given how much Alabama torched Maryland and, and its shooters are feeling confident just think that's unlikely now Michigan Florida State now I had Colorado to the elite eight because uh, I thought that Colorado had skilled guards really better for a lot of turnovers Florida State's you know Florida State high but its floor is really low I mean this is a team that lost to Notre Dame when it had the chance to win the ACC regular season title um, Florida State can be so awful to watch when things are going poorly but it can be so good when things are going great I mean this is a team that blew out Virginia by like 20 points yeah. Um, when Florida State takes care of the ball, yes, this is a great team. Not a good team, a great team. But it, it, you, you don't get those games very often when Florida State takes care of the ball. Now, Florida State was bad with turnovers in the first half against Colorado, great in the second half. Well, guess what? Florida State scored over 40 points in the second half after scoring just 24 in the first half. I mean, it, it, that is such of the central indicator. So, you know, if Florida State commits 20 turnovers, it's going to lose to Michigan. If Florida right. State commits 12 or 13, I think the Seminoles are in a great position to win. Like they, they have they have size with Balsa uh, it, it down low. So like they can neutralize Hunter Dickinson. Yes. They have the big bodies that can take away Michigan's big guys. And then the liver's injury, you have to think it's going to enter the picture yep. at some point. So right. I'm going to go with Florida State, but you never know what you're going to get on that. I'm with you. I think you're going to see a Florida State-Alabama regional final, and I, I've got a little homer, little Florida State homer in me. I'm going to take the Seminoles to get to the final four. I think the size, the experience, and I know Alabama's got some experience too, but Florida State can, can play lockdown defense, especially the, 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 two, three, and the two, three, and four positions. They are very good defensively. Raekwon Gray, 
kind of a middle linebacker type of small forward. Very physical. They got good guards. You got Scotty Barnes. You got the big uh, Croatian in the middle for Florida State. I'm going to take Florida State to Leonard Hamilton to get to the Final Four. Long overdue. He's been on the precipice the last few years. So I'm going to take Florida State over Alabama in a great all-South regional final in the East. Let's go to the South. Baylor Villanova, Arkansas Oral Roberts. Can Oral Roberts keep the magic going with the two scores, or has Arkansas just got too many horses? Yeah, I think this is the region where both semifinals don't really need to spend a whole lot of time on them. I think Baylor is in a completely different league from Villanova with, you know, Colin Gillespie being out. That's just a killer. Villanova has to have Gillespie, and it doesn't. And then, you know, what happens when a three seed plays a 15 seed in the Sweet 16? You know, that Arkansas is going to make the dumb mistakes that Florida made, and it's going to make the effort plays to win extra possessions. Uh, and the other thing is Oral Roberts against Ohio State. Oral Roberts was able to swarm EJ Liddell because Liddell was the only guy who was doing anything yeah. for the Buckeyes. But Arkansas has a lot of different guys who come at you in waves. So it's just not the kind of team where Oral Roberts can focus on one player on defense, contain that one player and, and get away with it. Our Arkansas is just not built that way. So we're looking at Baylor, Arkansas. Uh, I would be very surprised if we got anything else. And I think Baylor is going to get through here with the guards. I think the experience and the veteran guards of Baylor are going to get him to the finish line. Say what we want about big men. Guards win these tournament games, especially deeper into the tournament. Experience, good guards that can get their own buckets. And, and Baylor's got three really good guards as well. So I'm going to, I'm going to go Baylor to get, out of the, to get out of the South region. All right, let's go to the region where, in my opinion, you got three out of the four teams in the region could, could, could win this region. The only team I don't think can win it is Oregon State, but you can make a case for Loyola, Houston, and Syracuse to get out of this region. So I think this may be the most competitive region of the four, and it wouldn't shock me if Oregon State could get to the regional final, but I don't think they can win two games. Your, your thoughts? You know, I mean, Oregon State surprised me twice, so I'm not going to rule okay. anything out. For the Beavers, I mean, they are locked in on defense. They're and shooting they're, the lights out, too, on the th at the three-point line. Yeah, and I mean, th 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 this is a team that's riding the wave, and it it's riding the wave after, you know, winning a, a power conference tournament. Like, this isn't a mid-major. This is a power five team that just it ha it has figured things out. Now, th what's interesting about that game against Loyola both Oregon State and Loyola, they try to make you play poorly. Like they, 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 they don't so much live to, you know, impose their will. It's more of they get you out of your game. I mean, that's really what they're, they're based on. And so I think Loyola is simply a better version of Oregon State. They, they both like to disrupt and unnerve and, and really test you mentally. I think Loyola simply does that at a higher level. I think like Cameron Crutwig, you know, he outplayed Kofi Coburn. And I know that like uh, Crutwig is a more naturally skilled player than Coburn, but Coburn was kind of like the shack of, of modern college basketball. Right. And I thought that his strength, just his raw power was going to overwhelm Crutwig near the 10. And I was wrong. So that showed me a lot about Cameron Crutwig. And so, you know, if, if, he could, if he could outplay Coburn, he can put, outplay pretty much any other big man he goes against. 
And so assuming he does that to Roman Silva or whoever else Oregon State throws at him, if, if Crutwig wins his matchup, it's just gonna, it's going to be very hard for Oregon State to win because Loyola is in the right position to defend on the perimeter. We've talked about this, that, that along with Abilene Christian, Loyola Chicago just is excellent at running teams off the three-point line. So as long as you have Crutwig winning his matchup in the paint, uh, Loyola has, has the real upper hand in that game. Here, here, here's the, the, the intricacy of, of, of Loyola with Crutwig. He's their point guard in the half court. Everything goes through Crutwig as far as he's the maestro at the foul line, dishing, dribble handoffs, backdoor cuts. Not as it's not even as much him in the low post scoring. It's all the shots he creates for the other guys because of his skill passing the ball, just being a smart player, a point forward basically as a center. Not no other team in the country in, in this tournament has the center being kind of the point guard in the half court. That's what makes to me Crutwig so good. Absolutely. And this, you know, this touches on something that uh Oregon State has benefited from in the early rounds. I mean, Tennessee ran terrible half-court offense. I mean, that was everything bad about Rick Barnes in March. And then Oklahoma State didn't really seem to have a coherent offensive plan. Didn't get the ball to the right guys in the right spots. So Oregon State's defense feasted and did a great job. Credit to the Beavers and Wayne Tinkle. They have it all, you know, they have it all working together properly. But you have to think that Loyola Chicago is going to have an intelligent, offensive game plan it's going to be the porter moser difference that wayne tinkle outcoached rick barnes and he outcoached mike boynton yeah i don't see him out coaching porter moser i'm with you here's the other matchup houston syracuse you got buddy Beheim, the lethal three-point shooter for uh, the coach's son for syracuse the two three zone is kelvin sampson going to be able to penetrate in that zone and can they can houston make enough perimeter shots we know Houston's gritty, gutty, good defensive team, and they're good on the boards, but you got to be able to make some three-point shots against that 2-3 zone. If not, I think they're in big trouble against Syracuse, who, again, you got uh, Dolage, kind of a similar guy to Crutwig. He's kind of a point guard at Dolage at the kind of the top of the key. You got Buddy Beheim. You got Gerard shooting the three for Syracuse. Can Houston shut down Buddy Bayham and make somebody else beat them? To me, that's the matchup to look for in this game. Yeah, I think this is this is going to be an ugly game. Like this is the game I'm most convinced is going to be hard on the eyes. You know, it's going to be the equivalent of the, that Texas Abilene Christian. Yep. It's going to be in the low 50s, maybe even the high 40s, because <laughs> Houston doesn't have pure shooters. And, and the Syracuse zone, when it steps outside the ACC, you know, ACC teams are used to it, yeah. but teams outside the ACC aren't. I mean, San Diego State, the Aztecs look like, you know, they were in uh, the, the 15th century yeah. uh, against that uh, yeah. Syracuse zone. Totally flummoxed. And I mean, Bob Huggins is a great coach. He just won 900 games. And yet West Virginia needed like 25, 30 minutes to begin to feel comfortable on offense against yeah. that. You figure that Huggins would have had his team better prepared, but no, Syracuse just stymied West Virginia in that first half. West Virginia mounted a rally, but it was too little too late. So you know, if Syracuse is, could, could stump San Diego State, a Mountain West champion, and West Virginia, a number three seed, which had a real chance to go to the Final Four, I think Syracuse is definitely going to stump Houston, and the, and the Cougars won't have the zone busters yep. needed to figure that out. But then Houston 
plays, you know, frenzied, tenacious defense. Absolutely. And of course, Houston fights to the very last second. That's why the Cougars survived Rutgers. I mean, Rutgers choked, but Houston forced Rutgers to make lots of pressure decisions down the stretch. So, you know, uh, the last time Houston was in the Final Four, Jason, you might remember, uh, Houston beat Virginia 49-47 in overtime. Wow. That was an overtime game, and they didn't even get to the 50s. We could see that here. I would not be surprised if we had a 49-47 game here. I think it's definitely going to go down to the final minute. And you can flip a coin in terms of who the winner is. Who do you got? The main thing is it's going to be razor close. You got Loyola winning this region, or you, who do you, or you got the winner of the Syracuse Houston game? I am a, me- a member of the Porter Moser fan club. I mean, I'm out here in the Pac-12, out here in the West, and I think you know because he's a Rick Majerus assistant. Yep. That bringing him to Utah is such a natural fit. Utah would make a Final Four if if it hired Porter Moser. So I'm riding with Porter Moser and Loyola out of this region. Uh, you know, Loyola, Houston, eight versus a two. But really, does anyone think that Loyola is at a significant disadvantage no. because no. it's six seed notches lower? It's Loyola is playing the best ball of any team in this region. And, and from a gambling perspective, I, I take def, Syracuse is like a six and a half, seven point underdog. Take Syracuse in the points on Saturday against Houston, win or lose. Like you said, I think it's going to be a rock fight. It's going to be a two, three, four point kind of game. So I would definitely take Syracuse to win the get, take the points with Syracuse. All right, give me your last thing. And I'll get you out of here. Who's your national champion? Who you got? Well, you know, I, I, I like to bet with history, meaning that, you know, an unbeaten team entering the NCAA tournament, I pick against that team. So I picked Illinois over Gonzaga, but but just given the way the bracket's been hollowed out in all the different regions, you know, I see Gonzaga Baylor. being several notches better than every team in the field except for Baylor. I think Baylor now is, you know, is has. If, if there was doubt about Baylor's status a few weeks ago after the COVID pause, you know, not being as locked in defensively, I think those fears have been diminished. Right. So I think that we're on track for a Gonzaga Baylor final once again. I mean, I feel good about that pick again with Illinois not being in the mix, with Michigan not having Isaiah Livers. Uh, so I think we're looking at Gonzaga over Baylor in the title game. I got you. I think Gonzaga's going to win it too. I know, you know, it'd be, it'd be cool this year to see a little history with all the stuff with COVID. It'd be cool to see an undefeated team, first team since Indiana in 76 with Bob Knight. So it'd be a kind of a cool, cool finish to the, to a, such a such a rocky season. So I'm with you. I think Gonzaga is going to cut down the nets, and I'm gonna I'll take them over Baylor as well. So, well, Matt, awesome man, great job. Enjoy your Pac-12 dominance coming this weekend. You're gonna have four out of the 16 teams playing. Two, you're guaranteed a team in the final eight with Oregon and uh, USC playing. Good luck to your to your Trojans. Check out Matt's work on at. Uh, at Trojan Wire, part of USA Today. Matt's the editor. You'll see articles all week about uh, USC and other teams that are still in the tournament. Great job, Matt. Catch Matt. Give me your Twitter handle, Matt, on Twitter. My name, Matt, Z-E-M-E-K, Matt Zemek. No space, no no other characters. Matt does a fantastic job covering all college basketball, college football as well. So thanks again, Matt, for coming on. Good luck with watching your games. Good thing you only need, looks like you only need two TVs now, I think, coming this weekend. So, 
That's Enjoy right. When you action. make it through the first weekend, it gets all easy from there. Enjoy the weekend, Matt. Appreciate the time. Awesome work. And we'll be in touch real soon. Always great to be on your show, Jason. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it, Matt. You too. Have a great weekend. Thanks again for listening to the Powers on Sports podcast. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review on whatever podcast platform you are hearing us tonight. Remember, you can reach out to us on Twitter at Sports. So we'd love to hear your feedback, comments, suggestions for future episodes. And again, thanks for all the support. Remember to share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. And we'd love to see you back next time for the next episode of the Powers on Sports podcast. Have a great week.